0: this is van color. van color welcome back to this is van color my name is mo Amir. And our featured guest today is an independent media personality whose videos have garnered over 50 million views online. He has over 110,000 followers on social media. He's worked for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. But he caused a stir in the B.C. liberal leadership race when his candidacy was red lit, not allowed by the party's leadership election organizing committee. He shares a birthday with me. He is the ever controversial Aaron Gunn Aaron. Nice to see you.
1: It's great to be here, Mo,
0: and to to chat with you again. We're here again. We're going to play career Russian roulette again. Hopefully it (laughs) works out like it did last time.
1: (laughs) I'm looking forward to it.
0: I got to ask you, the BC Liberal leadership race is over. And for people who don't know, the BC Liberals are kind of a coalition between federal liberals and federal conservatives. There's been a lot that's been said about you, particularly online, but I've always seen you as clearly a federal conservative. Your views are in line with a Pierre Polyev, and as I, as I've said in the past, with an Arno Tool when he was in the leadership race for the Conservatives. You seem to fit into this party, at least what what their umbrella should be. Did you feel like you were unfairly treated?
1: Yeah, I think if you look how the rules were written on paper, I think one hundred percent I was. I think you can look at at other candidates like Val Litwin who who openly uh, went against the rules and there were no consequences How did he go against the rules? Well he went against We had to sign so to join the BC Liberal leadership race you had to sign a pledge that said that you would support whoever the eventual nominee was. Yeah. And of course he came out with maybe 10 days left in the campaign and said that he wouldn't do that and there was no consequences. Hmm. You had obviously Kevin Falcon accused by Pretty much, I think, every other campaign of signing up illegitimate members and running a kind of an unethical operation, if you will, and and there were no consequences. To me, the thing you have to understand about the BC Liberal Party is that it's not a big tent party. It's a party of elites. It's a party of increasingly downtown Vancouver lawyers and big city developers. And if you don't play by their rules, if you don't attend the same cocktail parties that they do, and you don't, and you might go against the grain on, on certain issues. Issues, um, you're not allowed in. Sure, they'll they want you to vote for them. They <laughs> want you to vote for them. Trust me, and and Have your money. They and, want your money, and, and they want your money. And sure. you know what? They'll also ask for and accept your endorsement, as they did for me uh, during the previous election. But mm-hmm. when it comes, when push comes to shove, and we're talking about control of the party, and they feel that there's a risk of them losing access to, I guess, you know, their political levers, mm-hmm. um, they're not willing to let that that happen. I think that if we had been allowed to run. Uh, I feel fairly confident that we could have won and um, I was pretty open, including with you last year that I would have cleaned house. And I think, In fairness to them and their own kind of self-interest, they recognize that risk. And, um, you know, uh, I guess congratulations are in order because with Kevin Falcon winning the leadership, they've once again protected, at least for the time being, that small enclave of political power that they were able to carve out for themselves.
0: Do you think when they red-lit your potential candidacy, it was personal or was it more about keeping this element of federal conservatives from influencing the party even more?
1: I don't think it was about, I think it was a little bit about that, about the policies, but Mm -hmm. there were other candidates who have espoused pretty much every policy that I've espoused at one point or another during the leadership race. I think it was more so a situation where the BC Liberals is a bit of like an old boys club of, of again a lot of downtown Vancouver lawyers and developers and I do not fit into that mold, mold at all there's no one I mean I'm not taking marching orders from anyone I'm not mm. taking policy positions sometimes that that others in the party would want me to take and I think they view that as threatening but what's so I think anti-democratic about it is they didn't allow the members to decide. And that's what I think political parties should be doing. Right. Look, if the members didn't want me to be uh, the leader of the party, then that's totally fine. I would 100% accept that decision. And I was 100% willing to accept uh, the pledge that they put forward to all the different candidates. The issue for me is when you have an unelected committee made up of, of individuals that, that no one really knows, um, making a decision behind closed doors without really offering a coherent or, or satisfactory explanation.
0: Can I float a theory? You can, of course, you can. Here's why I think they redlit you. You have a very punchable face, punchable face, and I say that as someone who also has a very punchable face, but for very different reasons. <laughs> okay, I'm well, joking. I'm joking. I, I take that uh, very I, personally. I, 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 I'm I, joking. Uh, no, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> a larger issue in the country here seems to be this issue with center right conservative parties. We're seeing it on a national level. Clearly, we're kind of seeing it here with the BC Liberals, where more moderates or people who are a little more center are trying to pull the party to a more progressive place. Uh, And they think that this will attract a a general, larger audience, particularly in urban areas. Whereas people on the right who are a little more conservative in this big tent, they want to double down on principles and and their convictions, thinking that that's what they need to, to really bring in more voters. You're clearly on the right side. (laughs) you're clearly on the conservative side. How is that a successful strategy in bringing in urban voters that are clearly going away from parties that are quote unquote, right?
1: So the first thing I would say there is I don't really buy into in today's, in the 21st century, the kind of binary left, right political spectrum. I think it's, I think it's out of date. I think it's obsolete. I think Canadians just want, you know, policies that work for them, be they left, right up, down four dimensional, who cares? Uh, What I think is important is that we have politicians who have principles, who have convictions, Mm -hmm. who have a vision for be it the province or the country, and who are willing to defend and debate the merits of their ideas. And instead, I think what we've been left with are politicians who all too often are essentially uh, weather vanes. Who don't have you know any particular principles whatsoever? Who put their finger up in the in the wind to figure out which way they think uh, you know the political uh, air is going? And uh, to me, that's not leadership. In fact, I would I would submit to you that that is the exact opposite of leadership. Yeah. So what I think conservatives need to do, but I would actually go a step further and say anyone in politics of any political stripe is to stop diluting their positions to stand up for the principles that they, they believe in and to level with Canadians. And I think when you don't do that, you come off as inauthentic, uh, disingenuous, a uh, weak and untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many Canadians are turned off of politics that are, that are apathetic. Look, Mo, I'm sure you disagree with, with many of the positions that that I hold M- most of your positions, most sure. of my positions that I hold. But uh, you know what the positions are. Yes, uh, yes, you know what, why I hold them. You know that there's there's no hidden agenda. It's there for everybody to see. Yeah, and I don't think
0: you're selling me snake oil. I don't think you're selling me on something and you're going to do something else. I will say that, and I will also say that I respect politicians that do that, even if I disagree with them.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that level of authenticity has been missing from Canadian politics, and mm. I think. Uh, I think to get to your your kind of the core of your question was how would that be politically advantageous is I think authenticity will be rewarded by the electorate. Mm-hmm. Um and one of the most frequent comments that I get when people run into me and, and recognize me is they'll say, Oh, I agree with eighty percent of the of the things that you say, or I agree with 70% of the things you say, or I don't always agree with you, but I always appreciate your opinions. And I think Canadians, um, I, I don't think we have to play this game where you're trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah, I think lay out your vision for the country, submit it to Canadians, and and let the voters decide. And if they ultimately don't choose you, well, that's democracy. But at least you played your part in it by offering up a real credible plan that people can can get behind.
0: And when it comes to the Conservative Party of Canada, who's going to do that now that there's a... Leadership position available.
1: Well, I think it's, it's Pierre Pauly as to lose. Uh, I think, I mean, he's, he's, he's got a large social media following makes mine look like a a drop in the bucket. And uh, he knows he has a vision. He has principles. Is that
0: going to be a factor? The social media following. I know he got like 4 million views on his announcement video. Do you think that will actually matter when it comes to
1: getting out the votes in a federal election? Yeah, well, it's going to matter a lot in a leadership election. Mm. I think in a federal election, uh, I, th- I think it will. Look, a social media following can only get you so far. Right. But um, the thing with with Pierre Polyev is I mean, people send me his videos who aren't political, who aren't conservative. And I think if you ask people yeah. across the political spectrum, I think most people would, would agree, some reluctantly, that he's the most effective person in the House of Commons at holding Justin Trudeau to account. Hmm. And um, I think he's going to do that during a federal election campaign, and I can only imagine uh, how concerned Trudeau will be to share a debate stage with him. So I, I think it's Pierre's to lose, and uh, but we'll have to see what, what happens.
0: We are now in the podcast exclusive part of my chat with Aaron Gunn. Aaron, thanks for sticking around again.
1: I, well, no problem. We got a, you bribed me with a white claw. So, I did. so uh, I did. I'm, I'm still here. I, I,
0: I, fi- I figured you as a white claw man.
1: That's right. <laughs> you. You pinned me. You pinned me down. It's
0: it's crazy that the last time we chatted on Mike, I should say, was a year ago. Mm-hmm. And we did it for our birthday, which is coming up March 3rd. That was a huge episode. Like we we went, I think two hours or close to two hours It skyrocketed on the iTunes chart. I think it was in the top 20 at one point. And the reaction was fascinating for me. Like, I know you're a much bigger social media personality, but for me, it was just an interesting reaction from all sorts of folks. And a lot of people who were, I think, conservative seemed to reach out and had a newfound respect for me, even though I was doing literally the same thing. I hadn't changed any of my views but or even my approach to an interview And then, you know, I got a lot of flack and continued to get flack as as the months went on. I have defended you against attacks that I think are libelous, that you're alt-right or white nationalist, but you still can't seem to shake this off. So in the context of our last chat, like, how did you feel? Was it kind of the reaction that you expected despite our, you know, very open, honest conversation?
1: Yeah, well— why don't I actually go back to just before we last chatted? Because sure. I had a, a what you might call a pre-campaign team kind of put together, yeah. And um, you were kind of the first individual in the media space who I was going to talk to about potentially potentially running for the leadership. Mm-hmm. And the response that I got was, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you probably shouldn't trust Mo. Uh, you, this is a, this is a mistake. You, 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 know, you're exposing yourself to gotcha questions and look, I, I had listened to your show before, uh, we had talked over the phone and I said, you know what, I, this, this guy seems like a straight shooter. seems like he wants to have a conversation and that's what I'm all about. And I know we didn't agree on, on everything, but mm. since when did, agreement on certain public policy positions become a prerequisite for having a conversation. I think if you look at what's happening, uh, obviously in the United States, even in Ottawa, um, I think we need to have more of these conversations, more of these dialogues if we wanna keep our society and our country uh, reasonably united while having respectful uh, differences. So um, I I thought it was was a great conversation. As far as what happened afterwards, I I mean I know you picked up a couple of fans, uh, uh, my mom being one of them. Oh, uh, who you, love Amber shout out, <laughs> and uh, so so yeah. And, and then you know I saw some of the flack that you got. Look, one of the things that, and we're in a similar, different but similar space, is that. I think there's two forces colliding right now in this space and that's activism and journalism Hmm. and they overlap sometimes, but I think with activism um, you know, you're trying to pursue a particular policy goal Hmm. at the expense of, of, of everything else. And you're almost, you know, part of your objective is to almost marginalize voices that are advocating something else where in journalism, your role is more to facilitate a political conversation that doesn't mean abandoning your principles or your biases, but um, you know, you're facilitating that conversation. And I think that, um, I mean, I, 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 view you as, as, as honestly, probably, the leading up and coming voice in journalism in British Columbia. Oh, don't and, and, use that
0: term. I don't like that term. Which? Journalism. No, journalism I, or <laughs> <laughs> up and coming. Up and well, up and coming is fine. Uh, but journalism. Yeah, I mean I, I don't see what I do as journalism. It is a talk show format. I am an opinionist for sure. I mean, I have no obligation to not have bias. Like I'm not I'm not objective by any means. When it comes to interviews, I think I'm fair, right? When it comes to my actual personal relationships, I do disclose them on air so people know when I'm actually friends with someone off air. So the, so there's different, um, you know, I, I just don't like the label. I, I Some people have placed that on me. I just don't see myself as a journalist. But I, I, going back to what you said about. You're this, not really you're
1: an d- activist either, though you're in sometimes the-
0: with i mean some some people i would never consider myself an activist but i think i certainly advocate for positions through my op-ed work mm-hmm. and including on this show but so yeah not an not an activist i i think what what i'm getting at is like this idea of preconceptions that people have because i think that if most people listen to that conversation even if they disagree with everything you say or disagree with everything that i say they would say that that was a pretty fair conversation and it mm-hmm. was premised around you being labeled certain things that I just didn't understand why you were being labeled those things. And I think we just chatted about how like the first 40 minutes of that podcast is me not not giving you the full court press, but really trying to figure out where your values and principles lie and trying to suss out whether you are a white nationalist or alt-right. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, you wouldn't be here if I – believe that you were. I literally wrote in, in a, a Vancouver's awesome article that I just thought that you had a blind spot to systemic discrimination and racism. And now I don't want to get into that debate, but that doesn't mean you're a racist. Right. Cause a lot of people have a lot of blind spots. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't understand the backlash of people saying, ah, oh, you platformed this terrible human being. And I just said, I just had a conversation with a guy who was clearly a mainstream conservative. And I don't know why that's bad or wrong or And I was getting it for months. I mean you you saw it yourself as well. Yeah. <laughs> and from real people, not just bot accounts, right?
1: Yeah, look, I I I would like to think that I'm I obviously have a social media following and I think uh I got that following by being an effective communicator of ideas, mm-hmm. conservative ideas. And if you are coming from the activist space where you you want to see your ideas implemented at all costs. You don't want to see effective uh, spokespeople or communicators right. from the other side. You want to see them have as small an audience as possible, and I think that leads to um, you know people supporting deplatforming or or or, or kind of marginalizing or, or keeping those voices tucked away on, on a corner of the internet somewhere, um, not because they're radical, but because they present a a threat to the ideas that they want to see implemented. Yeah. And that's why I do, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but you don't like the term journalism but because kind of associating that with kind of the traditional hard news definition. Mm-hmm, exactly. But from a larger context of, of you're not, you're not pursuing, uh, for example, if you, I used to work for the Canadian taxpayers federation, mm-hmm. that's an advocacy group. Yeah. So you are an activist when you work for them, you're fighting for lower taxes, less ways, smaller government. Yeah. Um, and you, when you're working for them, you, you're restricted in what you can say. If you have a, if you have a view that runs counter to that, you can't go out and say right. it because you're a representative of the organization. You're an activist. Whereas Moamir, I mean, you're an activist in the sense that you're an activist for everything that you believe in, but you're not beholden to a certain set of ideas, working sure. towards it. You, you want to have open and frank conversations. And I believe 100% that if you were presented with new information that changed your mind, uh, in real life, then, like the on-air Moamir would also change his mind because yeah. you're an authentic individual. So that's that's what I meant by that.
0: Well, I, I I can appreciate that. I just yeah, it was it was just an interesting moment in my, my journey and seeing the reaction. And I think it. it I don't want to take credit for anything because you have a great. Platform, It's very impressive, but it seemed to open up some doors for you in the, in the mainstream as well. I saw like literally that fall that week you were, you were on NW and, and we're getting a few calls or interviews.
1: Oh, I mean, I, and I, and I mean that because, um, and look, I, I, this is a short lived leadership race, but I interacted with lots of different people in the media. And I really, I really think you're an up and coming star in, in, in BC. And I think Canada, should you decide to go you know uh go for on a national level and i think it's because you facilitate these conversations in an honest authentic way um where it's not really these these cheap sound bites you're looking to have these conversations and i think you're uh even even the people that uh, most of your your audience members i'm sure that disagreed with me still found the conversation interesting and insightful if, if provocative
0: now we don't have to spend the rest of the time uh Shining my shoes. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> but I do want to go back to this idea of this these labels that have continued to kind of dog you. Mm-hmm. We've seen them from prominent people. We're not talking about Twitter bots. We're talking about actual people, politicians, people in media, alt-right, white nationalist. Again, if I had any inkling that you were those things, we would not be chatting. We are friends mm-hmm. on, off uh, mic as well. We would not be friends why are those labels still being tossed around? And at what point do they become libelous for you?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing I'd say is, is when it comes to some of those, those labels, I mean, you throw up things like white nationalist, I don't think you'd be hard pressed to find a more kind of hideous or um, terrible accusation that you can make against somebody. And I think they're super serious and, and you, you shouldn't be th- throwing, uh, accusations like that round with, without significant amount of evidence because I think those kinds of, I mean that represents a absolutely disgusting revolting viewpoint that has zero place in our society and zero place in Canada. Uh, so um, and it, I mean it's hard to think of an accusation that would be more reputation uh, you know more tarnishing to someone's reputation. So I, I take them very seriously as far as being libelous and and pursuing legal action i mean there's we're we're looking at it now i will tell you the legal system is is complex and expensive to navigate and there's a there's a saying it's almost
0: like it's set up for elites
1: (laughs) i mean serious i mean trust me if i had a million dollars sitting in the bank there would be a lot of defamation notices being fired out every every single week or month and but you know there is something winston churchill has that quote um What is it? You can't throw a, don't throw a rock at every barking dog or something along those lines. And it is, it is big undertakings uh, when you have limited resources to, to take on all these different, um, these, these, you know Twitter posts and things like that yeah and sometimes you just gotta power through them and, and keep communicating and, sa- and saying your piece but you know s- to your point there are some pretty prominent people that we have ser- I have served defamation notices before like mm-hmm. to the, the mayor of Victoria and uh, I think we probably will have to do so again because at a certain point you have to stand up and say enough is enough. Yeah. Uh, you know this is this is my reputation. you can't go around um, uh, making these kind of grotesque slanderous statements of which it's hard to imagine one that could be worse.
0: Did you think that this, and I don't want to call it a reputation, but do you think these accusations, these labels that have kind of dogged you, do you think they played a role in being red-lit to run for the BC Liberals or for their leadership, I should say?
1: I think that's a good question. I think more likely they were used, they used them as political cover. Mm. I don't think it was... I mean, if you take them for their word, they were supposed to, you know, do an actual like review your your background and and all of these kinds of things. Uh, they didn't find anything of substance, so I think they hide they hid behind um, some of those accusations to, to to make it seem like I was someone I wasn't or held views that I didn't or or never have. Yeah, um, more than that being the actual reason. I really do think the actual reason was. and I mean, I've talked to people, including on the Falcon campaign, who who thought that. You know the only person that could have credibly challenged Kevin Falcon for the leadership was our campaign, and they knew that if our campaign won, um, you know they would lose their their access to power and their and their grip on on the party. So I mm-hmm. think that that's that's insiders looking out for themselves.
0: I think at the the very least, yeah, your candidacy posed this huge wild card, and in a game where you're trying to measure risk, it's just impossible to to figure out because either. Yeah, you would win in a line slide, or maybe you would, you would get swept. Like, I, I'm not saying you would. I'm just saying it's it's an experiment. It's never been done before where someone like you has entered uh, the political arena like this. And it sounded like, I, I know through conversations, that you had organizers ready to go on the ground. You were fully ready to launch this campaign. And I, like I said, I think on that podcast, that I'm like, you're totally going to run. There's no way you can resist the opportunity. How much of that just sucked that you did all this work and then you don't, you don't get to like, it it just seemed unfair. Whether I, whether anyone likes you or dislikes you or agrees with you or disagrees with you, it just didn't seem right.
1: Yeah. I think it, it, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way, including people that didn't support me. I think because look, it was, I mean, it's at its foundation, it was very anti-democratic, which Mm -hmm. is, is the opposite of the, foundational ethos that this country was built on. Uh, it sucked. It was a shock. We we assumed, I mean, let, let's not forget that the excuse they used was my stance on reconciliation when the only indigenous person in the race actively supported my participation in it. Well, and, it,
0: seemed, it seemed like the, and I don't want to debate the context or the actual argument that you were making in those tweets that got you quote unquote red lit. It seemed to be this idea of, of what defines a genocide right is that is that a fair assessment
1: is yeah although i would say again that's the excuse that they used i don't think that's the actual reason but right
0: yeah. but my my point is that the argument that you made in those tweets was an argument that has been made by again mainstream federal conservatives mainstream liberals even
1: mm-hmm.
0: like it's it's one that i personally disagree with and that's why i don't think there's there's use for I don't think we're experts on in this field. I don't think it's useful for us to debate the content of it, but I'm just saying that that opinion has been out there and there's several mainstream people who are in political office who have made that and haven't been really called out on it or disqualified from running for political office in the same way.
1: Oh, I'm sure uh, probably a majority or a good number of BC liberal MLAs would agree with that opinion. Virtually everybody did until probably 10 years ago. Mm. And uh, to your point, I'm sure product, almost all federal conservatives do, and they would they would say so openly. It's not it's not a um, it's not a disqualifying uh, stance for sure for sure to say Canada is not a genocidal state. And I know we disagree on it. We don't have to get into it. But um, again, I just go back to the fact that there's an Indigenous person in the race <laughs> who yeah. you know, who who knew has seen my everything that I've said and doesn't agree with everything, but says, you know, I know this person. I I like him. He's a good guy. He should be allowed to run. And then you still, you have an unelected committee of Leoc who then, none of whom are indigenous, who then block me based on that issue. And I I think it's, it's just so outrageous. Um, Now I was your, your original question was uh, uh, I can't even remember now, but
0: just uh, still on, on this topic. I mean, and this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier about even me getting, continued to get flack for just talking to you in what I thought was a very fair way, in, in a way that I did push back against some things you were saying, but was just a conversation. There was a municipal politician who was like just tweeting at me relentlessly about how, I, I know the one. <laughs> about how I could have you on the podcast when you had expressed this view that supposedly got you red from the BC liberal leadership race. And I really just ignored it. And I said, first of all, like I'm not going through the guy's Twitter history. Listen, what I saw, I, you know, yes, I just, dis- I absolutely disagree with the view that, that you would express. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of politicians have, have expressed this view and this would disqualify me from ever talking to a lot of people who are in public office. And then, A a fan, a Twitter follower of mine who is very much on the left, sent me a tweet from this municipal politician literally expressing the same opinion that got you disqualified that this municipal politician is giving me flack for. And he was saying the same thing a year ago. And, And that's where I just was like. Oh, none of this is about what you believe in or principles or like your actual opinions, even. It's it's just this weird game of flexing and I don't know, trying to get one up on each other. I I don't know. I I, like I don't understand the some I don't understand the motivation behind someone who wants to cancel someone else when publicly they've literally done the same thing you know what i
1: mean <laughs> yeah i think i think some people get a certain high high out of it that's there's a bit of a a mob, mob mentality look i i we might disagree on this too i think that's it's very uh, uh, uh pertinent and and um uh it's not the right word but it's it's very commonly seen on the left these days but look i'd be the first one to but just, this
0: guy was not on the left like this municipal politician was not
1: He's not on the left. No, I'm pretty oh. sure they're like a BC liberal, like yeah. center. center. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. Well, uh, left of me, but um, <laughs> not that I, I'm a big fan of the binary political spectrum. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that I, I don't know. It's like it's like trophy hunting for some people. It feels like like they just like they like taking other people down, and rather than just having conversations, and I mean, it's it's it, first of all that uh, that issue is a, It's and this whole Indigenous stuff, and there's so many issues like this, I believe in Canada we're not having enough conversations, where people want to avoid, because they're difficult conversations. But to me, whether it's politics or whether it's your personal relationship, usually the difficult conversations are the ones that you really should be having. And they're the ones that are put off. And the more that you uh, put them off, the the more side effects and negative consequences uh, grow as a result. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about... Again, I, I, not to draw us into a debate, but I, but I do think this is important to talk about when we're talking about sort of center right party conservative parties. This whole trucker convoy thing, whether you agree with it, disagree with it, I mean, we can we've all seen that there are ugly elements of it, and certainly this is now being politicized on another level where it's like not even about the trucker convoy; it's about oh, you, you support the trucker convoy, you are now a terrible person. We're kind of devoid of context. And again, I don't like it. I I think you could have seen this from a mile away. Uh, I'm obviously pro-mandate, so I don't agree with the protest at all. I certainly don't agree with some, some of the elements that we've seen in it. But is this something that's going to hang over Pierre Polyev's head? Because he's supported it. Uh, Renee Merrifield, BC Liberal leadership candidate, she supported it. At least initially, at some point, is that one of those things that's going to now dog certain politicians moving forward?
1: I don't think so. I think Justin Trudeau's probably painted painted himself in the box more than more than anyone on this. I mean, I think like the recent polling shows around forty four percent of Canadians have sympathy with the position held by the truckers there's a There's a group of those people who who disagree with their tactics, but Symp- sympathize with their position. Um, you know, 44% uh, in a, in a first-past-the-post system where you need 39% to win a majority government, I don't think is... is I
0: bet you that number is way lower for the residents of downtown
1: Ottawa, though. Yeah, well, I don't think they're voting <laughs> conservative anyways in, in downtown Ottawa. But, um, yeah, so I think that it's... it's uh, Look, the other thing, and we talked a bit about this off-air, I think I'm not sure how this will end, and maybe how it ends could play a big impact to how much or how little this hangs over the head of various politicians. But I think that, you know, in six months from now we'll be moved on and talking about something else. I think other issues like inflation, the cost of living are much more um, ingrained in our political, in our, in our current political climate that are going to, to outlast this particular issue.
0: I think part of the problem is that, We know from polling data that Canadians are tired of restrictions. And especially, and again, I'm not a scientist, I'm not taking a hard stance on this, I'm just saying, the perception is that Omicron is not as serious as Delta or COVID Classic or whatever. And right or wrong, the opinion of majority of Canadians across the country, except for some places in Atlantic Canada, is that they want restrictions lifted. And I almost feel like part of the problem is that some people who are supporting the trucker's convoy are conflating that with what's happening with the trucker's convoy. Because I do think most people are frustrated. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I can't wait to get rid of masks. I still abide by the rules. You know, I'm a dummy, so I will just do what the public health office says. But for sure, people are tired. They're getting a little antsy. Uh, but that is still different than I think what the truckers are doing. And it might be an issue of tactics or whatever. Do you, do you think it's a mistake that maybe I think some conservative politicians are seeing the anxiousness of constituents and people they're around and thinking that, oh, this is like the truckers convoy is a manifestation of that when really they are a
1: little different? Yeah, they're different. I mean, it's it's a tricky, I, the, the, of course, the funny part about this is these kind of protest tactics have been used many times before. They're usually used on the other side of the political spectrum. And um, it's interesting because the tactics themselves are usually fairly unpopular among the public, but they're also usually effective in the sense that way more people are talking about the issues than they would have be otherwise. I mean, you could gather you could gather on at the legislature grounds, obstructing nobody, waving signs, and no one covers it, and you could do it every day, and you're probably not going to get any headway. You do what they're doing but at they're
0: Ottawa. Not, but they're not flying
1: swastikas,
0: and, and for whatever reason. I'm not I saying mean, one,
1: like, one person flies a swastika out there of was, a crowd of 10,000.
0: There was more than one. And, and the, the whole thing with the jerry cans, like, at the very least, you could admit. I, I mean, even the swastika imagery, I, I, a lot of those people that are flying it were basically saying the Canadian state was, yeah. was akin to Nazism. But— Regardless, even on the base level of optics, they're different.
1: Well, they're different. Well, a couple things. Again, the so the the people aren't, aren't professional protesters. When you see some of these anti-pipeline protests, for example, they are tightly controlled by very professional groups, environmental groups who are very well funded and very well organized, who know exactly what they're doing and. And they're effective because they control the message that way. These protests, like in Ottawa, and that we see kind of copycat ones happening throughout the country. I know they were in Vancouver. Anybody can show up to them. So if you're going to have a couple thousand people at a protest, I mean, you're going to get, the idiots are going to come too. You know what I mean? There's nothing barring them from coming. And is that a problem for your messaging? 100%. But I think if you're trying to look through... uh, you know the truth of what's actually happening here. It's that there's a lot of Canadians that are frustrated, and um, you have a pretty g- grassroots movement um, popping up and is raising attention to the issue. And there is a significant issue with allowing um, this kind. of, I mean, that the, they're infringing on the rights of their their fellow citizens, obviously, by how they're holding the protest. Mm-hmm. So there is yeah, an, I thought
0: you're a freedom guy.
1: That there is an what about issue my with freedoms. That. Just well, to drive down the street civil dis- civil disobedience <laughs> i mean the the, the one difference that, the one difference that i would articulate is is they are asking basically for their constitutional rights back so i i understand their 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 motives and the, and the thing is is I, i'm vaccinated i'm pro vaccine as as you know um but i can also empathize where if you you know you don't want the vaccine for whatever reason you've you've come across different information or or, or, or whatever it is, whatever <laughs> Different is.
0: false information. <laughs> sure,
1: sure, right, right? But, but they believe what they believe. Yeah. And th- they've had their lives destroyed for it. Yeah. And um, would I be in a situation where I wouldn't have got vaccinated? No. But would I be in a situation where I wouldn't want to get vaccinated if I truly 100% believe that it was the wrong thing to do for myself? Then, I mean, I can be a pretty stubborn person, so potentially— and and the government has basically in some cases these people have lost their jobs you know they're un- they're, they're cut off of EI they can't pay the mortgage on their home like you're making people pretty desperate so we need
0: more serve more socialism to take care of the people that have fallen through the cracks is what
1: you're saying i just don't think we should be firing people <laughs> from their jobs because of an individual health care decision that they made but it um especially when uh, as you pointed out with with omicron the science the science has changed so and and i think that justin trudeau has just politicized because he sees it as a wedge issue that, that can be effective i mean i i I just look at what's happening in Denmark and England and Scandinavia and, and, and it's not like it's a bunch of right-wing countries that are, that are getting rid of these COVID restrictions.
0: No. And what I will, what I will say is the, the amount of people that are out there is quite remarkable. I mean, I heard a left-wing commentator say like the organization of, of getting that many people out on the streets for that long puts any quote unquote leftist protest to shame. And it's, this commentator was saying that, that, you know, you you can't even compare the two in terms of the number of people that are that are out there and, and have been out there for so long. I I, I do I, wonder, and again, I, I really don't want to debate the trucker's convoy, but I, I just feel like if this had been like another type of protest, I feel like it would have been broken up a lot quicker. And I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I have some ideas why it hasn't been broken up already, but. We're well, going on, we're pushing
1: about two weeks now with this. Well, Ferry this Creek, the, I mean, the illegal blockade uh, at Ferry Creek went on for, I think, six months. Yeah, but that was blocking in.
0: one company in a in kind of a remote area. It wasn't blocking a downtown it wasn't blocking the nation's capital from functioning in a proper way.
1: True. Uh, I mean, you had the blockade of the key rail line that fed Western, uh, well, that fed the country. The most important economic rail line in, in Eastern Canada was blockaded, I think, for, for two, two and a half weeks. Um, and then the and the government cut a deal with the protesters. If, if you remember how, remember the, the wet sweat and blockades, and they the, the, they kind of caved and made a deal. And here, I mean, Look, whenever you, whenever you, where does this end? I guess let's just, yeah. Where do you think this ends? How, well, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. In fact, uh, something might have happened by the time people are actually listening to this that we're not <laughs> presently aware of. I just I, want you to make a wild prediction, and you're going to be terribly
0: wrong, and, and it's on record. Look, what, what I would
1: say, and <laughs> in, in my limited life experience, whenever you have a a very sides have invested so much in, in their position. Like the protesters have, some of them have driven from BC and have been camped out in a pickup truck for, for two weeks. And you have a a prime minister that said what he said, you need to find off ramps for people um, to get off. So they at least feel like they have something. But Did you
0: watch that emergency press? Like why would the prime minister meet them? Like they're, it's a lot of it just sounds and, and I'm sorry. Like I, I understand that maybe some people sympathize with them, but it's, it, there's just no rationalizing with them. Like it's not even clear what the objectives are, to be honest. Like they want all restrictions lifted right away. Cause I don't think that's going to necessarily happen. And also part of that is up to the provinces, right?
1: Well, you make a good point about who are you negotiating with? Because, you know, I, I'm not going to speak to the, the, the so-called organi- organizers or self-proclaimed spokespeople. Um, the, the, the real th- issue to me is that they obviously speak for, or or not speak for, but they're clearly representing the concerns of millions of people across the country. And that's what you have to address. Not like the, the ragtag group of, of, of uh, people organizing this, who I don't know at all who they are, but, um, but the, fact is that there's millions of people across the country that, that, that are, have had their lives destroyed or are frustrated or concerned about kind of the perpetual infringement on constitutional rights. And, and I think you kind of have to, you have to speak to that, or, I mean, I don't know what, but to your point, what, what's the alternative? The alternative is, I guess, is a sending in, you know, and I don't know how many police you would need to, you saw how many police at Ferry Creek they needed for, for those group of protesters. So what would you need in downtown Ottawa?
0: And I guess <laughs> I guess we've gone a little bit off the rails where we are kind of debating this a little bit. But I guess ultimately, when we look back at this and everything that's transpired, whether it's optics, whether it's the background of some of the organizers, my larger point here is how much does it mar the politicians, the people that have come out and supported it? including yourself. Like it's a big risk where you're actively supporting this thing. And yeah, there are some ugly elements again, whether it's optics or substance, we can put that aside, but there are some ugly elements that can absolutely be used against you or Pierre Polyev or Renee Merrifield or whoever.
1: Yeah, I think, well, I, I mean, two things. I mean, one from a more practical level, um, because you've had, mainstream conservative politicians stake out very clear positions on this issue. I don't think there's a huge amount of risk for, for somebody like myself. Uh, secondly, I think for those politicians, um, I, I, yes, there's 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 fringe or radical people amongst the ten thousand people that are gathered there. It's the same with every protest movement. I think most Canadians see through that. I'm sure if the CBCs t- started to do some investigative journalism on the thousands, hey, hey. the thousands of people at uh, <laughs> I'm on the Mountain. CBC, sir. We will not disparage the CBC on this show. I, I'm sure there's some, some Marxist communists among their ranks. And, and I wouldn't, if you have a genuine open protest, you're going to get all sorts of people are going to show up. And um, so I, I don't think uh, I I don't think the short answer is I don't think it's going to damage them. And the other thing is, I think they're on the, the momentum is on their side in the sense that look, whenever well, do you think there's going to be mandates and and COVID restrictions in, in two years?
0: I think that's separate.
1: I think that's almost coincidental.
0: I, I think in terms of momentum, we have to be talking about public opinion. I don't, like, again, I think there's a conflation between just tiredness of their restrictions versus how many people actually support the trucker's convoy in Ottawa.
1: But, yeah, I mean, that, that that's, the tr- that's the tricky part to, to disentangle um, yeah. because the trucker's protest is, you know, put aside what's, what some of the, the fringe elements might say, it's, it's mainly there to get rid of. I'm sure if the vaccine mandates went 99% of people, like that's 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 what they're there for. And I think that, and that's why they're supported by a third of the population. And I think most people would argue, I think including politicians who support mandates that in six months they expect, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you probably expect those mandates to be gone. So I think from a long-term perspective or a medium-term perspective, I don't think that issue uh, is going to hang over the heads of these politicians, barring some dramatic change in the trajectory of, of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've definitely stopped making predictions based uh, on the uh, <laughs> the trajectory of this uh, disease.
0: Let's talk about Pierre Polyev a little bit and what that means for British Columbia. I feel like if Pierre Polyev becomes the leader, and you do have this, if if he continues, you know, from what we've seen in recent history, this this campaign of you know, being very uh, firm in conservative stances and being this almost poster boy for conservatism, is that going to translate into affecting the BC Liberals and how they start approaching their talking points?
1: So I do think so, but uh, not sure if it's in the way that that maybe you you were implying. What I think is going to happen is I think Pierre Polyev is likely to win the conservative party leadership. I think it's his to lose. Mm-hmm. And I think his election, especially if he becomes prime minister, but just simply by becoming leader, it will lead to a a reorientation of the political landscape and a a more clearly defined conservative versus non-conservative option and a liberal option or whatever. The problem that's going to pose for the BC Liberals is they've been traditionally trying to straddle that divide. A divide that in my opinion in like the late 90s when the parties came to prominence was a lot easier to do. Now you have someone, you know the BC Liberal Party has hardcore Justin Trudeau people in it yeah. and supposed to have hardcore Pierre of people in it and that's the only way that that's their, that's their vision for their electoral coalition. Well, if you have those two individuals going head-to-head, representing basically polar opposites of the political system, how do you possibly hold that together? And in my opinion, um, you won't hold it together. And to be honest, the I believe Pierre Polyev will, will rile up conservatives um, to such an extent that people will kind of demand to have that option available to them as well provincially. Um, <laughs> uh, what one might consider. You love this guy. This is Pierre? your guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> look, I, I it, it goes back to what we were talking about during the, the television portion is yeah. he, he knows, he knows where he stands. He has a vision for the country. He's principled. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's got his values and he's not afraid to debate and defend his ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, and, and I think I speak to many conservatives in this country where we are, um, tired of watching people water down their, I mean, Aaron O'Toole is a perfect example, water down their ideas rather than try to defend them. Yeah. And, and, uh, if, if you don't mind, I can do a little, I can do a segue here on the carbon tax. So Aaron O'Toole, uh, championed how much he was opposed to the carbon tax during the BC liberal or sorry, the, the federal conservative leadership (laughs) race. He was the true blue conservative. That was Aaron O'Toole. So then he gets a whole bunch of people's votes, including, including myself versus Peter McKay, who Mm -hmm. was either pro carbon tax or, or at a softer position on it. Yeah. Then as soon as he becomes leader, he flip-flops, does a big speech about how the party needs to change and moderate and, be, and introduces essentially a carbon tax of his own. I would a- argue actually a worse version. Uh, it was just a very complicated scheme. Uh, it was a bureaucratic, it was an unnecessarily bureaucratic version uh, of, of the carbon tax. So put aside what you may think ab- about the carbon tax. Here's an individual who clearly, I, I mean, I, I don't know who he's lying to. He's lying to, the, to the, the base of the party to get their vote and then flip-flop. And then maybe he's going to flip-flop back on something else. Yeah. Or is he um, – or does he believe that the carbon tax is a bad policy for Canada, was genuine during the leadership race, but then is simply willing to propose a solution uh, that he thinks isn't in Canadians' best interest but will help him in the election? Right. And to me, either of those scenarios is is not what people want to see in their in their politicians. And I, and I think uh,
0: th- that's why, ideologically, we are friends and can have conversations because – because I don't think anything irritates me more than that. And and of course, you know, Trudeau is the king of this where he'll go march with Greta and then you look at what they've actually done on climate change and it's very little or you know, he'll take a knee at uh the BLM protest and then has he done anything to address systemic racism or racial equity? No, of course not, right? Like it's it's this idea of like it, like I said on the television portion, I I much rather respect someone who tells me exactly what they're going to do, what they're about, and whether they're on my side or not. That's what I can expect them to do, as opposed to okay, what are they what are they really going to do?
1: <laughs> yeah, I I just think it's it's I don't know, and it could be my background in, at like the Taxpayers Federation, but. Look, I, I'll tell people right now listening, if people are considering a career in, in politics or ev- even media right now, it's not a it's a, not a super stress-free, lucrative uh, uh, career offering. Sure. And uh, there's lots of other things you can do. So if you're going to get into it, you would think you'd be getting into it because you really believe in what you're saying yeah. and that you really believe that it's in the best interest for, for the country, the province, or your city, or wherever you're advocating for. Yeah. So to see people just flip-flop all over the place, clearly because their only objective is, is – to attain political power or Aaron O'Toole. I I don't know. He said a childhood dream to be prime minister or something like that. So I just have, I have so little time and respect for that. And, and I much rather have a a genuine debate. And I agree with you. There's people on the left um, uh, that, I mean, you have people like Andrew Yang and stuff in the States that, that put forward interesting ideas that clearly, um, believe them and articulate them and are mm-hmm. consistent over time and um, uh, and I've got just so much more respect for that and I just I, I can't stand this this kind of fake virtue signaling uh, you're just
0: you're just stomping all over Aaron O'Toole's dreams. Aaron. Wow
1: well obviously I wasn't the only conservative <laughs> who, who thought that uh, seeing that the cons- how the conservative caucus voted.
0: I wanted I mean we're almost we're almost we have to wrap up here soon, but I I want to touch on this idea of this big tent being untenable anymore. And you and you brought up this really interesting thing about how the BC liberals are gonna have people who are really high on Trudeau, and then they're gonna have some people who are really high on Polyev, and those two are gonna be continuing their battle, but now, you know, leader to leader. When when you describe that, I just realized like we have as a culture as a country similar to Americans as well become so much more polarized right so why like why why are we so polarized and and why are we so polarized across these lines because you and I have, have talked about how sometimes you know it isn't about left or right it is about elitism versus populism what is happening where a party like as you've just kind of outlined a party like the BC Liberals is somewhat an untenable because the same core supporters that you had before are now really at
1: odds with each other uh well I, think, I mean the political culture has changed i would say the political fault lines have changed so you know in the late 90s where there was a lot of issues about things like government debt and government spending and things where you know, the end and potentially the NDP was on one side and kind of the, f- the, f- the federal conservatives and liberals for the most part, one another. I think that that's obviously changed. I mean, some of that's imported from the United States. You mm-hmm. have, you have uh, battles over, over, over culture. You've got battles over, um, things like free speech. You've got battles over, um, all sorts of different things. I mean, we talked about the, the indigenous stuff. We talked about, uh, you mentioned BLM systemic racism. Um, so I think you have, uh, a different subset of issues. Parties evolve. They go in different directions. And, um, and, and, you know, p- from a provincial perspective, part of it as well as that the NDP, I think has been very effective under under Mr. Horgan's leadership. Is well, they moved to the center. Yeah, and 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 a pragmatic, I I would call it almost dare I say like kind of a common sense center. Wow, the left is that an approach. endorsement? I mean, I, Aaron as you Aaron know, Gunn,
0: NDP agent confirmed.
1: John Horgan grew up uh, in <laughs> Langford. I played hockey with his son. So, uh, but it, but you know it's put the it's put the. I think the the BC Liberals are in a really awkward position. Yeah, where the NDP has moved to the center, the federal Liberals have moved to the left in in a weird way. Again, the binary spectrum doesn't doesn't work very well, but in a weird way, have moved to a left on on some of these issues. Even even if sometimes, as you pointed out, it's only rhetorically and not actually in in practice. And then uh, the Conservatives under Polyev, I imagine, are going to stake out a very clear position that is that is that is very, that is the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. So I think that the BC liberal coalition is going to have a very difficult time uh, holding itself together. And uh, I'm not sure how this one, this one plays out, but uh, probably uh, not, not well for them. Yeah.
0: Is there any way you return to the BC liberals?
1: I mean, I think it's, I think it's very unlikely. Um, Well, I would say it's it's very unlikely, and I think that look, if
0: their party leader asks you to run for MLA and goes, you know, we and if you win, and if we win, you'll have a spot in cabinet.
1: Well, it, I mean, look, if they completely change the party and they stand for, it, then <laughs> then perhaps. Like, it's not about it's not about me. Like as you know, I've got my own platform. Like I, I'm doing fine. Like I don't I don't need to to run as a as an MLA somewhere or something like that. So it's. To me, it's it's just a, again, you, you only get one life to live, right? And you only get one career to choose. So I'm not going to spend that life and that career fighting for ideas or standing up for ideas I don't believe in. Mm. And what a waste of what a waste of time on this earth. So, you know, I mean, during the last. Uh, uh, at the, at, after what happened, our short-lived leadership race. You know, I held an event in Chilliwack. I told people that uh, I would do everything in my power and promise that, you know, people wouldn't have to hold their nose and vote for the BC Liberals come the, the next election. And
0: that's what I wanted to get into. Yeah, what's what's next for you?
1: So we, I imagine in the next month or two, there'll be a pretty significant announcement. So far, we've launched something called Common Sense BC, commonsensebc.ca, which is kind of a... a, a a starting point or placeholder for people who are fed up with the current political options. We lay out again, our policies. Um, and, and by the way, I was, I meant to make this point during the television interview, but, you know, I was in the race for two weeks uh, out of like, I don't know what it was, eight month race or nine month race. And I was the only one that released a policy uh, platform of what I would do as leader of the party and premier of the province, which uh, to me just shows the the lack of intellectual Depth in the debate that we're, that we're having about about policy. So, um, anyways, on commonsensebc.ca, it lays out some of the policies that, that we believe in. I'll, I've started out the core of which is is basically my old old campaign team, and we've signed up tons of people. And so that's a starting point. And uh, in the next month or two, I think we'll have some more more announcements. The next provincial election isn't for two and a half years, I think, or so. Sure, just over yeah. that. So uh,
0: could be earlier if if you know Oregon decides he's not going to run and the NDP get it, a new leader. Like there, there's a lot of things that could happen, but most likely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, w-
0: so, so you're, you're starting a party. This is basically what this sounds
1: like. I'm committed that there's going to be a political alternative come. So you're running, you are,
0: a, you are a politician now.
1: There's, well, actually to that point, I don't know what my involvement was. My, my I will guarantee and promise and do everything in my power to make sure that that option exists. Whether I'm going to be involved directly or be leader or off doing something else is is uh, an announcement or a decision for another day.
0: Have you recruited
1: Lori Throness? I have I've not recruited Lori Throness. <laughs> <although> <laughs> he was at
0: your event. He, he was, that was, at, big, my, that was, he was at
1: my Chilliwack. He was at my Chilliwack Optics. There, optics. Were two, there were two uh, there. John Martin was also there. Oh, right, yeah. Their former MLA. Is he flexing his bicep? You, is, that, is that what he's known for
0: his twitter bio or twitter profile photo I think is just him like flexing his bicep
1: yeah oh really I mean for his age it's, it's pretty impressive I mean to each to each their own I suppose Sure. Yeah. I mean I'm uh, yeah uh,
0: so so you're so this is happening you're guaranteeing this in one not that you're running, or another. but that there will be a viable option more viable than the current BC
1: conservatives Yes, and uh, I'm sure. Hopefully, if you uh, if you have me on again, there'll be something uh, at, at that time. There'll be something new in the works and exciting. But I, I just think uh, we'll we'll see. I mean, it's a very fluid political situation. But th- that's what I told people. And there's so many people in this province that that are fed up. And by the way, it's not just uh, conservatives. It's also people that that don't like the elitism. Kind of kind of the the snobbery or is that a, that a word snobbery sure. yeah, yeah. the um and and honestly just the insider dealing and i mean borderline corruption full corruption whatever whatever you want to call it and, and things like the housing prices and everything that happened while the bc liberals were in power and i think you know i'm a big believer that in western provinces unlike eastern provinces uh, we have this um, tradition, especially on, on on the right, of kind of recycling our political parties and throwing them out and starting new. So, mm. I mean, obviously you saw that. Social credit came to power. <laughs> then they threw social credit out. And BC Liberals came in. In Alberta, obviously you saw that. They had social credit. Then they had the Wild Rose. You have the SAS party in Saskatchewan. Right. Uh, obviously you had the Reform Party federally that did very well. And um, so there's, there's, a, there's a culture here, I think, to dislike the establishment, mm. generally speaking. Uh, irrespective of, of political positions. And the BC liberals are are embody uh, the political establishment here who f- from all, and I took many meetings leading up to and, and while we were in the race, um, uh, you know, they, they really think they have like a God-given right to govern this province for lack of a better term. Uh, and it was a surprise to me because I wasn't that involved in provincial politics. Right. And I just think, you know, there's no personal trait that turns me off more than, than, than arrogance and thinking that, Mm. that uh, you have a right to something when it's, we live in a democracy and, and the people will decide. So yeah, I think there's, I think there's a political opportunity, but probably more importantly, I think there's a little bit of a democratic responsibility to, to provide another option for, for people to vote for.
0: Yeah. I want to leave you on this question. How many friends do you have? And I know we've talked about how a lot of our friends are non-political, but how many friends do you have that you could classify as "quote unquote" progressive or left?
1: Uh, a lot. Okay, that's, uh, that's good.
0: I don't know. I, that's why I'm asking.
1: A lot. I w- so the first thing I would say, and I think this is a this is honestly, I would I would argue my biggest strategic advantage for for articulating political messaging. Is almost all my friends are are apolitical. I would consider them more swing voters than anything. Mm. Um, some have prog- more progressive views that, than others on, on 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 various issues. They're all over the political spectrum. To be honest, I think they're pretty representative of people from our generation that are that are that don't affiliate with any particular party. I'm sure you probably noticed that there's not a lot of hardcore partisans. I mean, I'm sure. Seventy percent of the population under forty would not consider themselves hardcore partisans. I
0: only started to become friends with hardcore partisans once I started doing Mm -hmm. this, right? Like (laughs) my my friends before my media life, yeah,
1: yeah. Look, I non political. I've I've got lots of friends that have you know have, as I'm sure you do, that have strong views on 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 certain social hot button social issues and, and stuff that we all grew up in. But for for most issues, one of the things I absolutely love about this country, and I think, is a huge opportunity. Is that unlike the United States, for example, is there are so many people, broadly speaking, in the middle, who are open to hearing new ideas, right. new positions on different sides that are not like I'm on Team Blue or I'm on Team Red, which I feel like you see in the United States. Um, they've they've adopted political party affiliation to be almost a. Uh, a religious marker where it's almost ingrained within you.
0: Yeah. People like to just in general, keep it more private. Like in the U S you almost advertise it. Yeah. And here you don't really do that. I guess during an election, maybe you'll have a campaign sign, but even then it's, it's not super as common as in the United States. So I think you're, you're right about that. The, the, the the reason I bring that up and it it wasn't to uh, audit your, your social circles. It was to, kind of wrap this up in this idea that you might vehemently disagree about policy with someone or even have fluidity in certain values of how you see you know what society should look like or or things like that but it's like within very reasonable bounds you can be friends with someone who is the
1: complete opposite of you politically
0: (laughs) as i think you and i are friends that was
1: kind of what the the point i'm trying to build to yeah 100% i mean i would hope so i mean
0: but there are, there are a lot of people who don't think that that's that that's
1: doable yeah i mean i, I don't know if that's that's a, a world or a country where i'd want to live in where you couldn't yeah. be where you can't be friends with 60% of the the population or because they don't <laughs> they don't have share your your political views or your political philosophy or align with you i mean um look we've i've i've gotten in good Good solid debates with friends. I've seen uh, many of my friends' political views evolve uh, Mm -hmm. as they get married, start families, these kind these kinds of things, get jobs. But it's uh, it's, so it's it's interesting. Once you see that
0: first paycheck, you do start to change uh, your views a little bit. Yeah, it's it's, taking off that first paycheck. Yeah, and I'm saying that as someone who's quote unquote progressive.
1: Yeah, and and I would just say the other thing is is um, I think it's important. Uh, and and we do this when we're when we're talking uh, privately off air and stuff. I think it's important to also not lose sight of in and I think you know I'm a big history buff, but in the in the scope of history and in the global context of the world today, how much Canadians actually have in common with one another? Hmm. when you take a step back and and, and look at, look at people across time and across geographical spaces and different cultures. Yeah. We do have a lot in common. Um, there's there's issues, for example, me and you are on different sides of the political spectrum, even hot button issues uh, like the, the CCP in China, where we agree 100%. Might be the only
0: issue. But. <laughs> it, well,
1: co- cost of living, we've, we've, we've chatted, chatted about and, sure. and some other things. But um, look, so I, I think it's, uh, and, and I mean, the, the other thing is that there's so many things that we would agree with Mo. That just that we take for granted because they're That's not even right. political yeah. political issues like yeah. like our 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 rights or things that, that just every Canadian agrees with yeah and we shouldn't lose um, sight of that And I understand it's easy to do and I, for sure I do it sometimes as well which is why I think these conversations are actually important and and uh, so that you know you can run into someone and and not. I agree with them, but maybe you don't want to punch them in the face.
0: <laughs> and I never said I wanted to punch you in the face. You you stared at me with deer in the head like I, I when did, I said that I line. I did. And I was trying to make a joke, and it just fell flat. It and went I over it my same, head. I said the same thing about myself. It I, went right over my punchable face. I, you, yeah, you know, there's – I think there are some dudes who have punchable faces. And I think it's pe- – I don't know. I don't, I don't know how this is going to land, but I think we both have punchable faces, but for very different reasons. <laughs> I, I mean,
1: I don't, we do have some. Is it the beard? Is that, is that what you?
0: Well, I just think I smile a lot, and I yeah. feel like you know someone who is, and I, and I have a zany voice, and and so yeah, for sure. I'm sure. I, I'm sure there are some people who really want to punch me in the face.
1: So yeah, I've been told I'm more. Unapproachable, like I kind of have a, a unapproachable resting face, and right. uh, it. Uh, but punchable face. I mean, I've. Uh, Angelo said I could make that joke. So I'm blaming him. Okay. Well,
0: I don't know. I don't know if check will even leave it in the broadcast. It was, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> I, I hope they don't. Cause my
1: reaction was terrible. I just didn't have anything. You kind of, you kind of like floated it up there and I just had nothing to, to, to give back. It was like, you're like, well, me and you both have punchable faces. And I was, I didn't know what to do with that. I, I hope he okay. doesn't hate me over
0: that. That was, let her know that was a joke that just landed flat. Well, I, I went for you, it. You made up for it. At we, the end. we take, Uh, We take swings on this show, you know? You just got to go for it sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I I
1: appreciate it. Roll the dice.
0: Aaron, man, uh, I know this was a lot different than than our first chat, but I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And And I think I do want to leave kind of on this message that, obviously, we all have certain boundaries and perimeters of who we associate with and who we don't want to associate with. But I think, ultimately, it is a good thing to have People that you like, and even if your politics are different, accepting that as are just the reality of life, because there is so much more to the world than constantly trying to win arguments.
1: <laughs> I, I, I agree one hundred percent, and. Uh I apologize in advance if this gets you kicked off of Spotify or or anything like that. Um,
0: You know, I I knew what I was doing and and I, I, again, I I really don't see anything controversial that we hit on. Like I just, there will be people that are mad just for you being here and that's it. I don't think there was anything. They might disagree with things, but this idea that there was something offensive said in our chat. I, I,
1: well, that's, I I mean, it. it does go back to your earlier point, which is I'm, I still think that I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm very opinionated, but I think the level of my uh, controversialness has been blown significantly out of proportion. I marketed
0: I this whole episode as the controversial Aaron Gunn. Yeah. you're gonna see it. Your mom's gonna see it in, in ads of like the controversial Aaron Gunn on this is Van Color.
1: <laughs> well, it's uh, I, I should have tried to I should have tried to be more controversial than too conciliatory. <laughs>
0: no, it was but, a fantastic uh, chat. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me. Folks, that's our podcast. You don't need me to tell you where to find him online. He is a social media commentator with a following of, of over 110,000 followers on social media. Influential, but controversial. He is Aaron Gunn. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>